Fukushima, and children's thyroid cancer rates. One year ago, it was the hot topic in Japan, as five former prime ministers contended that a new report showed that the 2011 triple meltdown had increased thyroid cancer in children exposed to radiation at that time. The administration of Fumio Kishida, the current administration, denies it and is trying to bury the accusation. Still, the current prime minister denied it then and continues to ignore the accusation now, possibly in light of government plans for Fukushima and its radioactive waste legacy. So, who do you believe? The only comparison of radiation impact on children possible is with that other massive nuclear reactor accident, the one at Chernobyl in 1986. So, when a genuine expert on radiation and health damage to children tells you, in the first 15 years after the explosion and the meltdown at Chernobyl, the rate of thyroid cancer in children in Belarus. Rose 200 times. In the Ukraine, it rose 20 times. And for every thyroid cancer case, there are 29 other cases of children who have other thyroid diseases. Well, when Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project points out the historic understanding of nuclear accident radiation release and child thyroid cancer cases, You get a very clear, uncompromising picture of the exact nature of that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So, I know what can happen when those nuclear so called experts get it wrong. This week, we look at the pushback against child thyroid cancer rates, a hot topic for debate in Japan last year, in an interview with Joseph Mangano, executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project. Joe lets us know the merits of the child thyroid cancer arguments in Japan. With suggestions of what kinds of research need to be done to determine the truth. Meanwhile, what was being swept under the carpet last year has direct bearing upon this week's stories dealing with Japan's reactor operations and radioactive waste, because if you can ignore the impact of what you're working with, you can get away with, well, murder. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than could be found in last week's State of the Union address. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, 
February 14, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., the top story is nuclear by implication. On February 3rd, about 50 cars on a Norfolk Southern Railroad train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. The train was carrying highly toxic vinyl chloride, hydrogen chloride, and other hazardous materials before it derailed. Other toxins, like phosgene and hydrogen chloride, were emitted in large plumes of smoke during a controlled release and burn, prompting officials to issue mandatory evaction orders in a one-mile radius of the crash site. Now, it's reported that animals are sick or dying near the train derailment and chemical fire, which raises the specter of what nuclear energy proponents are proposing for the transport of radioactive waste from wherever it is stored next to reactor sites around the country to the not-yet-existent but proposed high-level nuclear waste so-called interim depositories in West Texas and New Mexico. The biggest difference would be that any radiation released in such a train accident where the payload was nuclear materials could be underreported, if not ignored, because the releases would be invisible and have no smell, whereas there has been smoke, odor, and unavoidably visible consequences of the chemical spill from the train wreck in Ohio. It's a cautionary tale. In Massachusetts, at least six contractors working on the decommissioning of the Pilgrim nuclear power plant were exposed to, quote, unplanned intakes of radioactive material, end quote, because Holtec, the company charged with the decommissioning process, failed to use a safety measure that could have prevented workers from being exposed. The accident took place in August 2020, and only now has the Nuclear Regulatory Commission found Holtec in violation of an NRC code because it did not implement air sampling in an area where workers were using respiratory protection and being decontaminated. NRC also found that Holtec's whole body counter, the devices used to measure and detect radioactive material in people, was not operating to full capacity. Other safety issues were always found, and we will link to the article detailing this on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 608. Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists goes over the Nuclear Regulatory Commission daily safety reports. And in the latest batch, he discovered that on Christmas Day of last year, an emergency diesel generator at Calvert Cliffs Nuclear in Maryland, near Washington, D.C., started up without a valid reason. The cause was a failure of the emergency start button due to age-related degradation, raising the question, what else at this nuclear reactor and others could be degraded because of age? At a meeting of the NRC on February 9, Southern Company, which is in charge of building the long-delayed and way-over-budget Vogel 2 and 3 units in Georgia, is calling for more use of self-approval processes during new reactor licensing and construction. Because who wants pesky regulators telling them what to do when it's already known that they are incompetent? Three safety violations were found at the Yukani nuclear plant in South Carolina, including use of a procedure improperly modified as a, quote, time-saving measure that caused coolant to link from the reactor primary system during an outage in November. And 
Two violations were found at the St. Lucie nuclear facility in Florida in September 2022, when a faulty Unit 1 valve that was improperly maintained caused a significant reduction in steam generator water level, forcing operators to scram, meaning emergency shutdown, the reactor. Think of a car on the freeway going 70 miles an hour and you hit the brakes. That's what was done at the nuke. Over to Japan, where the past week showed an increasing tug of war over nuclear reactor operating life. On February 8th, the country's Nuclear Regulation Authority delayed a decision on nuclear reactor operating life after one of its members, Akira Ishiwatari, a former professor of geology tasked with studying plant operators' measures to safeguard reactors from earthquakes and tsunamis, objected to the government's plans to not only allow for 60 years of operation, but to take all downtime when the reactors were shut down and use that to extend the licensing period to as much as 70 years in total. Polls have shown a majority of the public opposes the easing of reactor restrictions. But on February 10, the Kishida administration approved the new construction and operation of nuclear power plants for more than 60 years at a cabinet meeting. This change has become an official government policy because the cabinet has the power to overrule the NRA's opinion. The cabinet's decision takes precedence. If there's any encouragement in all in this, it's that this marks the first time the NRA's opinion differs from the government's decision about anything nuclear. The government will, of course, enforce its decision, and they might back it up by firing some of the NRA members changing leadership to one that will bend more to the cabinet and the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. They are working to secure maximum use, their term, of nuclear power plants and will work on the development and construction of so-called improved nuclear power plants, meaning the small modular nuclear plants which have not yet been designed, improved, constructed, or tested and to think how inexpensively and quickly solar panels could be put up in their place. Regarding Japan's plans to release radioactive tritium-contaminated wastewater from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, the Japanese government has announced that it is adopting a revised action plan and will delay the discharge of this rad water until, quote, experts had verified it was safe to do so, which raises the question, who are the experts? And what are they basing their metrics on? At the same time, Korean researchers are preparing to release the result of a simulation they have been working on to demonstrate how radioactive water discharged from Fukushima will flow and how it will affect the world's oceans. This will be coming from researchers from the Korea Institute of Ocean Science and Technology and the Korea Atomic Energy Research Institute. Tritium is one of 64 radioactive nuclides believed to be contained in the radioactive water, which is stored in more than 1,000 tanks and has a total liquid volume of 1.37 million cubic meters. So what is Tokyo Electric Power Company doing as a result? They are cutting the number of radioactive substances that are going to be measured in the Fukushima plant wastewater, completely eliminating the measurement of 33 additional radionuclides. Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority has been reviewing the revised plan submitted by TEPCO for three months but has yet to issue a decision. 
And there is still the problem of radioactive waste generated as a result of the accident at Fukushima Daiichi, which caused radioactive materials to spread over a wide area in eastern Japan. These are radioactive materials released into the atmosphere during the accident and spread by the wind, including incinerator ash, rice straw contaminated with radioactive materials, and radioactive materials suspended in the dust. And even without the release of radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima Daiichi into the ocean, there are problems for local fishermen, as radioactive materials exceeding the voluntary standard set by the Fukushima Prefectural Fisheries Federation were detected in sea bass landed off the coast of Iwaki City in Fukushima Prefecture. Radioactive cesium-137 was detected at a concentration of 85.5 becquerels per kilogram, which is 35.5 becquerels above the limit set by the Fisheries Federation. And the government wonders why the Fisheries Federation is opposed to the release of more radioactive water into the Pacific? In Turkey, following the massive earthquake that happened there, experts have warned that the Russian-built and operated Akuyu nuclear power plant could have untold consequences for Europe and the Middle East. Here with more information with this week's hot story is Linda Pence-Gunter. When the devastating 7.8 magnitude earthquake and its even more deadly aftershock sent buildings pancaking into rubble last week in Turkey and Syria, the unpreparedness of authorities to deal with the aftermath became all too readily apparent. The equipment wasn't there, nor was the manpower, especially in already war-torn Syria, where citizens were left to fend for themselves and scrabble with their bare hands in rain and freezing cold temperatures, desperately trying to free loved ones. But in Turkey, there was yet another question, the integrity of the Akuyu nuclear power plant under construction 430 kilometers away from the earthquake's epicenter and consisting of four Russian VVER reactors, each of 1,200 megawatts. Authorities say that this time the site emerged unscathed. The International Atomic Energy Agency insists there were, quote, no issues so far related to radiological safety and security of radioactive sources. The first of the four reactors is scheduled to become operational this year. There were two major earthquakes in Turkey in the 1990s, which had already sounded a severe enough warning about the folly of planning to build nuclear power plants in an actively seismic country. It prompted an uprising of citizen opposition, writes my colleague from Greece, Maria Sotiropoulou, in her blog, republished in English on Beyond Nuclear International. Indeed, the public outcry and the immense costs led to the cancellation of the project in 2000. But, writes Sotiropoulou, it was revived under the current president, Erdogan, who made the deal with Russia's Rosatom after earlier failed bids from Sweden, Switzerland, France, Germany and Canada. From the outset, ground subsidence and serious deficiencies in the geotechnical and environmental studies were found, reports Sotiropoulou. In January 2021, two explosions occurred at the construction site and seawater was discovered seeping into the concrete foundations. Furthermore, the deal with Rosatom means that Russia maintains control of the waste management and can take the irradiated fuel, process it, but then return it to Turkey for long-term dry cask storage, says Sotiropoulou. That radioactive inventory will simply add to the radiological risks in the future if, 
and more likely when, another deadly earthquake strikes the country. So why continue, given the risks as well as the enormous costs that are likely to soar above $20 billion? The answer, says Soteropoulou, lies in statements Erdogan made at a 2019 party political conference where he intimated that Turkey should be allowed to develop nuclear weapons. Some countries have missiles with nuclear warheads, not one or two, he said, but they tell us we can't have them. This I cannot accept. Imagine the scene today, had Akuyu been operational on February 7th and then levelled by the earthquake. That's not something Erdogan or anyone should accept. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. Thanks, Linda. In France, of 56 nuclear reactors in that country, they finally got it up to 45 reactors online as of last Friday. That's the highest number since February 11th of last year, but this month another eight reactors are due to be taken offline for maintenance. Last year, energy output from the fleet slumped to the lowest in more than three decades. And the current surge in output is temporary, with historically low energy level production for this time of year continuing. Compounding France's nuclear headaches is the fact that the cooling pools at La Hague on the country's northwestern tip could be full by the end of the decade. State-owned Orono, which runs them, says the government needs to outline a long-term strategy to modernize its aging facilities no later than 2025. Nothing in nuclear acts that quickly. Meanwhile, a government advisor who chose to be anonymous said... We can't have a responsible nuclear policy without taking into account the handling of used fuel and waste. It's a subject we can't sweep under the rug. A few weeks ago, we covered the annual resetting of the doomsday clock by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, now at 90 seconds to midnight, which represents total global catastrophe. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres emphasized the need for member countries to address what he called the dire international security situation as represented by the doomsday clock. Meanwhile, the Kremlin has expressed alarm that the doomsday clock had edged closer to midnight than ever, even though the scientists who moved the symbolic dial cited Moscow's own thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons as a key factor in the decision to advance the dial of the doomsday clock. And in an interview with Carl Grossman, an internationally award-winning environmental journalist, with Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, where he refutes the claims of the nuclear industry that it has new improved small modular nuclear power plants, saying these are not new and improved, but things that were tried 50 and 60 years ago and didn't succeed then. Why are they popping up now? Follow the money. We will link to that interview. And now... Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. None that's out of week. In the UK, Britain is about to give green status to nuclear power. A move that is part of a bid to unlock billions of pounds of funding for more nuclear power stations. At the same time, while the country's media is pretending this is a separate story, the cost of new UK underground nuclear waste facilities has jumped to 53 billion pounds. That's to store its current waste of 133,000 cubic meters of radioactive waste above ground. 
and that amount is projected to swell to more than 4 million cubic meters in the future. So, whoopee! Let's build the bright, shiny objects at the front end and forget that there's a stream of, shall we say, nuclear equivalent of fecal matter coming out the backside. And that's why UK government officials and agencies in charge of nuclear matters, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Nuclear weapons, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, so-called permissible radiation exposures. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet, despite the known risks, this industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, to help you understand what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we provide them with context and continuity so you can understand the full picture. We give you a context so you can understand not only what a story is, but what it means in terms of the worldwide nuclear profile. And we also provide a healthy dose of skepticism with a much broader, deeper, and nuanced telling than you'll regularly find anywhere else. We cover not only what the nuclear industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back, and how any one of us, yes, even you, can take action towards stopping the nuclear madness. But in order to keep doing this work, we need your help. Here's what you can do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. Help us with a donation of any amount and know that it is tax deductible. You can also set up a recurring donation. And you know, for as little as $5 a month, you'll be helping this program stay alive. So if you value the kind of information you get from Nuclear Hot Seat, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the Donate button, and know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Almost exactly one year ago, Japanese politicians engaged in a tug-of-war over a report showing a shocking increase in child thyroid cancer rates in northeastern prefectures in the wake of the 2011 Fukushima triple nuclear meltdown. Of course, it was in the best interests of Prime Minister Fumio Kishida and his government to deny any enduring negative impacts from the nuclear disaster, as Japan was making a lot more nuclear plants, as we learned from several of today's news stories. But how bad was the impact on children and thyroid cancer rates after Fukushima? Is there a precedent for attributing this increase in cases to the nuclear meltdowns? And shouldn't this information be taken into consideration with all of the recent decisions being made about Fukushima's waste and Japan's plans to expand nuclear operations? To remind everyone of exactly what those child health statistics showed, and gain clarity on their importance, I spoke with Joseph Mangano. Joe is Executive Director of Radiation and Public Health Project and a trained epidemiologist, 
one who searches for the cause of disease, identifies people who are at risk, determines how to control or stop the spread, or prevent it from happening again. Joe has over 30 years of experience working with nuclear numbers and comes from a history of teasing out health information from data. What follows is one such examination, and it is powerful. We spoke with Joseph Mangano on Friday, February 11, 2022. Japanese politicians are in a tug of war over the rates of child thyroid cancer that have shown up in the wake of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, the triple meltdown of March 11, 2011. In Fukushima Prefecture, a health survey has found 266 cases of confirmed or suspected thyroid cancer in people aged 18 years or younger at the time of the nuclear accident. An additional 27 were discovered in a separate survey. But the Japanese government is claiming that a panel of experts commissioned by the prefecture says that no links have been established so far between the thyroid cancer cases and radiation exposure. And they're trying to fob it off on quote-unquote overdiagnosis, meaning they're actually looking for something and then finding it. Well, to try and sort out the truth of it, we contacted Joseph Mangano. He is executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project and an epidemiologist. That's one who searches for the cause of disease, identifies people who are at risk, determines how to control or stop the spread, or prevent it from happening again. Joe has over 30 years of experience working with nuclear numbers and comes from a history of teasing out health information hidden in the data. We spoke with Joe Mangano on Friday, February 11, 2022. Joseph Mangano, thanks so much for joining us today here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. This is regarding the what I'm calling the thyroid cancer info wars in Japan that are going on right now. Let's drop back to some basics first. What causes thyroid cancer? If you Google thyroid cancer causes, the first page you're going to see the Mayo Clinic. What causes thyroid cancer? And they're going to have three things. Female sex, certain uh, genetic conditions, and the third one says radiation. Then you go to the Cleveland Clinic. They do a little better. They have eight different risk factors. And one of them specifically says exposure to radiation from nuclear weapons tests and nuclear power plants. Cleveland Clinic, other risk factors are things like goiter and a family history of thyroid disease and a personal history of thyroid disease. Those aren't really root causes. Radiation is a root cause. When you say root cause, what is the distinguishing factor there? Distinguishing factor is that that cause can take an otherwise healthy person and turn them into someone with thyroid disease. So if radiation is a cause of thyroid cancer, why do we study child thyroid cancer? Any environmental pollution, including radiation, is much more harmful at a certain dose to children, infants, and the fetus than it is to an adult. That's clear. Is that because of body size or mass or weight, or are there other factors involved? 
One is, is the small body size. And two is the fact that the fetus and infant and child are growing very rapidly, which means the cells are dividing much faster than adults. If you injure a cell to a fetus or an infant, it's going to reproduce into other injured cells and make the chance of cancer more likely. Adult cell reproduction is much slower. Has thyroid cancer or other thyroid disease been studied near nuclear facilities that are not in meltdown like Fukushima was, but are still functioning? Oh, yes. There's, there's a long history of studies of excess thyroid cancer from radiation. As you mentioned, there have been some. The first was Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors. The next were the people in the Marshall Islands exposed to atomic bomb test fallout. Near Chernobyl was perhaps the, the best studied, going to refer to a fantastic book in 2009, written by Alexei Yablokov, which is probably the best consensus on harm from Chernobyl, which, you know, along with Fukushima, is the largest meltdown in our history. And for people who cannot see this at the moment, the title of the book is Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. That's right. Um, if I can go just a bit of detail, in the first 15 years after the explosion and the, the meltdown at Chernobyl, the rate of thyroid cancer in children in Belarus rose 200 times. In, in the Ukraine, it rose 20 times. And they, the, the book makes clear too that for every thyroid cancer case, there are 29 other cases of children who have other thyroid disease, not, who don't quite have cancer. So it was very clear that the child thyroids around Chernobyl were devastated by this meltdown, which is an important fact before we start to study Fukushima. In Japan, it seems that the current prime minister and a group of five previous prime ministers are engaged in what I am calling thyroid cancer wars. The five previous prime ministers released a statement to the European Union stating that nuclear should not be included in green energy taxonomy, meaning the funding of energy, specifically citing, quote, many children are suffering from thyroid cancer. That was the phrase. And this has triggered an epic pushback by the current prime minister and his government. What's your take on what is happening there? My take is that what's being found near Fukushima now with child thyroid cancer was very predictable because it's really similar to what happened after Chernobyl in that area. The current total of children who have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer in the 10 years after Fukushima is now up to 293. Using U.S. health statistics for a, a population that size, they, they are testing 38,000 children. For every 38,000 children in 10 years in the U.S., we would expect 
three or four children to develop thyroid cancer. And here we're talking almost 300. So we're already almost a hundred times above expected in child thyroid cancer near Fukushima and rising. The numbers continue to rise every year. Now the pushback from the current prime minister and his health advisors have been that, yes, there are 293 children with a thyroid cancer, but it's only because we are screening them and testing them, which we normally wouldn't do. It's only because of screening. And that absolutely falls on its face. Put it this way, any regular physical exam from a physician to a child or an adult is going to include palpating the neck area, touching the neck area. The thyroid gland is located right around the throat. And if there are growths, cancerous growths, a doctor is going to, to feel them. So that line that it's only because screening absolutely has, carries no scientific weight whatsoever. Like the term that they've been using is that it's been overdiagnosed. In other words, catching cases that would not otherwise be caught, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but certainly these numbers are alarming. And I need to point out here that I believe it was Dr. Alex Rosen of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, who, when he came on this program, pointed out that the study itself, the Fukushima Prefectural Health Study, had been manipulated to minimize the number of children who could be considered for the study. First off, it was only started five years after the triple meltdown. And many families with children who were under 18 at the time of the triple meltdown had already moved away. So they could not be considered. If anyone, after having been started in the study, moved out of Fukushima Prefecture or even changed doctors or even missed some of their appointments for the study, they could be eliminated from the pool of individuals who were being followed for this. So the numbers keep shrinking and are undoubtedly diminished from what they might have been if all the children under 18 at the time of the triple meltdown were being studied. Once individuals are lost from a study like this, is there any way to pick up their information and be able to consider it? It would be very difficult to, to do that. However, studies should be routinely done tracking not just thyroid cancer among children and not just thyroid cancer, but all cancers and all immune diseases in the local area in Japan. I know of no other study that has come out of Japan specifically looking at the post-Fukushima health consequences, the rates of disease and death. I have yet to see any published in medical journals. And the reason why is because I've published some using not data from Japan, but data from the West Coast of the United States, which we know was the hardest hit part of the US by Fukushima fallout within four days after the meltdown. Now, of course, the, the doses were much lower than in Japan, but they were higher than normal. We saw levels of iodine 131 in the precipitation in places like Boise, Idaho, 200 times higher than normal. Instead of two picocuries, it was 400 picocuries and other areas are around the country. But all in all, the, the West Coast had more. I found 
and my colleague Janet Sherman, who was the co-author of this, this great book on Chernobyl, found several things. We looked at the number of newborns on the West Coast who were born with hypothyroidism, an underactive thyroid gland. And we found that in the months after Fukushima, in the five West Coast states, the Pacific states, the rates were 28% higher, the increased 28% from the same period in the previous year. The rest of the country, it went down 4%. We also looked at children who were born with congenital hypothyroidism or were on the borderline. And that number was 54% higher. That included 777 children. Okay, these are just markers of where Fukushima may well have left its footprint. Okay, we have to continue monitoring and, and doing studies on this, but I know of no other published studies. In fact, the party line from leaders in Japan and other leaders was, was that Fukushima caused zero deaths, right? This is one of the two worst meltdowns in history and maybe one of the two worst environmental catastrophes in history. And 10 years later, 11 years later, they're pronouncing no deaths without doing the studies, which is not the way science should work. And certainly those of us who followed the study know that Masao Yoshida, who was the Fukushima plant manager, who stayed behind with the group called the Fukushima 50 to actually fight the meltdown by pouring water from hoses onto the plant to keep it from exploding or melting down even further. He died three and a half years later of esophageal cancer, which the country and the government very quickly said, oh, that had nothing to do with Fukushima because it takes too long for that kind of cancer to show up. And it hasn't been that long since the accident itself. So there's no connection to it, which was one of the many lies to cover it up. So we know that certainly Yoshida died and there may have been others, but there's been no attempt to follow these people. Fukushima Prefecture itself commissioned a panel of so-called experts and they came out with a statement that no links have been established so far between the thyroid cancer cases and radiation exposure. First of all, do you have any idea who these experts might be, their affiliations and funding sources? And how likely is it that their finding perhaps reflected a bias that was set up before they even became part of this study? Well, I know the child thyroid cancer study is being done by the Fukushima Medical University. It's an institution that is reliant on, on government funds for its operation. And we know that the government is very pro-nuclear, very, very strongly committed to reopening as many reactors as possible. There were 54 reactors operating in Japan 11 years ago. And after Fukushima, they closed them all. Many will not ever reopen, but they're trying very hard to reopen. And I think the number is nine. Out of 54, nine have been operated again, which is not very many, but they're trying to get that number as high as possible. And to do so, it would be a conflict for them to admit to a lot of disease and death caused by the meltdown. So it's really not objective science. There really needs to be an 
independent analysis of health trends and health patterns in the area. What would it take to get something like that going? And how likely is it that it will ever happen? I've been involved with Radiation and Public Health Project was formed just for that reason, because even here in the United States, there wasn't any good way to get analyses of nuclear reactors and their health risks from people at universities, many of whom are reliant on government grants for their research. We set up the group as one independent from industry, independent from government. And since then, we've published 38 articles in medical journals on our findings, including several about thyroid cancer. I think that is truly the only way, as long as governments remain committed to continuing nuclear power programs, they're just not going to be objective about health risks. It's as simple as that. That goes to some of the sources that are being cited to prove, and I put that word in quotes as well, that Fukushima had no impact on thyroid cancer rates in children. They are the 2012 report that came out from the World Health Organization and the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and also the 2014 report from UNSCARE, the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. How reliable as a source for this information is the IAEA, UNSCARE, and the World Health Organization? And how reliable in your estimation are the studies that cite them? Those organizations are totally unreliable. And I'll just go back to using Chernobyl, which is the other large meltdown, as a precedent. From the get-go, the word came out from those organizations that nobody died. Or in Chernobyl's case, they admitted early on to 31 rescue workers who helped put out that terrible fire and got huge amounts of radiation and died quickly. They used that number for a long time. Finally, finally, they pushed the number up to, I think, 9,000 extra cancer cases. However, that is a massive undercount. Again, this book by Yablokov estimated in the first 20 years after Chernobyl, there were 986,000 additional deaths caused by the Chernobyl meltdown. So a million, and obviously it's more than a decade later that number is increased. So they are into either denying or minimizing rather than being accurate as to what the causes were. I'll even say that we in the U.S. did better. For years, the U.S. tested nuclear weapons above the ground until the test ban signed by President Kennedy went into effect in the 1960s. For a long time after that, the government was absolutely silent on what the fallout from those massive blasts above the ground were. And finally, in 1999, after the Cold War had ended, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the National Cancer Institute put out a publication where they estimated that up to 212,000 Americans developed thyroid cancer from the atomic tests in Nevada only. That doesn't include the Soviet fallout, which got here, and, and the fallout from the U.S. tests in the South Pacific. My point here is that it sometimes takes a long, long time to really get out of the truth. And I'm not sure that's even an, an accurate estimate. And of course, they only did thyroid cancer. They stopped their studies after that. 
obviously there are other cancers and diseases from which Americans were affected by the fallout. So it may be years before we get a much better, clearer view of what Fukushima did to the world. And I need to point out that thyroid cancer is one of the first cancers that will show up after exposure to radiation. But following a dose, be it the iodine-131 that you mentioned, which is radioactive and comes from a fresh nuclear release, that there are long-term impacts from this that take years, if not decades, to show up. Yet, while cause and effect are greatly separated from each other, it doesn't mean that they're not connected. It just means that maybe we haven't had the persistence of vision to hook the cause up with the effect, which is cancer later in life. You bring up a good point, Libby. The effects of radiation exposure aren't always seen like immediately. It's not like you're exposed to Fukushima and and within a few days you develop cancer. These can take a long time, years, even decades. Decades later, they're still studying the survivors of the original Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs and finding excess cancers. And this is 70 plus years ago. So it really takes a committed research effort to to understand what the effects are. And radiation is no different than anything else like cigarette smoking. You, You start smoking as a teenager, you're not necessarily going to become ill soon after. It could be many decades after. But the disease does show up. Oh, yeah. In in larger numbers. No question about it. What? Further research, in your estimation, should be done to understand the health impacts of the Fukushima disaster? Not only do I think the population in Japan should be studied, I think the affected populations in other countries, the the U.S., as I mentioned, the, the people on the West Coast, and neighboring countries like Korea should be investigated. Number two, I think the thyroid cancer is truly just the tip of the iceberg. We should look at childhood cancers. We should look at birth defects. We should look even at underweight births or premature births. We should look at, and again, as the years go on and these young people become older, look at adult cancers and things like that, because again, it's going to take decades to really understand the full, and not just near Fukushima as well. All of Japan was affected. You know, they found hot particles in, in, in Tokyo, 140 miles away. It's really a, um, there are no lead walls blocking radiation once it's left the reactor. And should I say that almost 11 years later, the Fukushima reactors are still releasing radioactivity into the Pacific Ocean. It has not been contained, which is, makes it different and perhaps worse than Chernobyl. Chernobyl was contained. It was a terrible, terrible thing, but Fukushima is not. So we must reckon on that as well, because the Pacific Ocean is a feeder for fish for many people. And with Japan, there's the Citizens Radiation Data Map, which was a citizen scientist activist study that took place, taking soil samples from around the country. And what they found was that, you're right, all of Japan should be studied because they found evidence of Fukushima radiation at great distance from the northeast of the country. 
the study was so scientifically sound and the book that resulted so well written that as a group of amateur writers and amateur scientists, they actually won an award from a major Japanese journalism society. The only time it's ever happened for a non-professional journalist. So the information is credible. The danger is real. It's ongoing and we'll never be free of it. Yes, but at very least we can understand the true health risks better because this will help us limit the exposures and limit the role of nuclear power in the future. Just because we've had a Fukushima, we've had a Chernobyl, is is tragic, but we can use it as, as a learning experience. Similar to what we did with the atomic bomb testing above the ground. What happened in those years, the, the fallout was enormous. It went worldwide. The health consequences are, are, are quite severe. We're still studying, but we learned enough to know that we shouldn't test anymore. I mean, when right before the treaty was signed, President Kennedy gave a speech and he specifically used words like the loss even of even one child with leukemia in their blood with cancer in their bones, with poison in their lungs, is is unacceptable. He he made very clear that this was not just about trying to reduce the chance of a nuclear war. This is a health treaty, which is what it was. So I think we can use studies of Fukushima to learn the same lessons so that in the future we will have less nuclear power and thus less disease from exposures. From your mouth to somebody's ears. Joe Mangano, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show and be able to rely on your excellent information. And for now, I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. That was Joseph Mangano, an epidemiologist and executive director of Radiation and Public Health Project. We will have a link up to his website, radiation.org, on our website, Nuclear Hot Seat number 556. I was impressed that Joe could quote President John F. Kennedy from a July 26, 1963 speech on the need for the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty with Russia. In this excerpt, he addresses the need to protect children, and I found it particularly poignant as Jackie Kennedy had a history of giving birth to a stillborn infant, and only a few weeks after this speech gave birth to an infant who died within 48 hours. That is the subtext when JFK speaks about the children. This treaty can be a step towards freezing the world from the fears and dangers of radioactive fallout. Our own atmospheric tests last year were conducted under conditions which restricted such fallout to an absolute minimum. But over the years, the number and the yield of weapons tested have rapidly increased and so the radioactive hazards from such testing. Continued, unrestricted testing by the nuclear powers, joined in time by other nations, which may be less adept in limiting pollution, will increasingly contaminate the air that all of us must breathe. Even then, the number of children and grandchildren with cancer in their bones with leukemia in their blood or with poison in their lungs might seem statistically small to some in comparison with natural health hazards. But this is not 
a natural health hazard. And it is not a statistical issue. The loss of even one human life or the malformation of even one baby who may be born long after all of us have gone should be of concern to us all. Our children and grandchildren are not merely statistics towards which we can be indifferent, nor does this affect the nuclear powers alone. These tests befall the air of all men and all nations, the committed and the uncommitted alike, without their knowledge and without their consent. That is why the continuation of atmospheric testing causes so many countries to regard all nuclear powers as equally evil. And we can hope that its prevention will enable those countries to see the world more clearly while enabling all the world to breathe more easily. That was an excerpt from a speech on the need for the nuclear test ban treaty from a speech by President John F. Kennedy. We'll link to the complete speech, both audio and transcript, on our website. It's well worth the read or the listen. We're coming up on the 12th anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. That will be as of March 11. It's the 12th year. And there are demonstrations literally around the world to commemorate the start of that nuclear disaster. One of the planned demos that caught my eye is taking place in North Wales, near a closed nuclear plant named Trosfind, which is where small modular nuclear reactors are being proposed to be installed. Yes, there will be a demonstration with flags and banners, an information booth, all of which is standard, But instead of a vigil walk over the Suspension Manai Bridge, they are going to be carrying with them quote-unquote tritium water. And they're going to be throwing it over the bridge to remind everyone of the impending discharge at Fukushima of radioactive tritium-contaminated water into the Pacific. They're also going to be throwing money in, representations of pound notes printed on biodegradable paper. This is to signify the wasted money on nuclear developments in both Trosfind and Weiflenud on the Isle of Mon in Angsley. Thanks to activist and longtime listener Alfred Jones for the lead to this story and for his reminder, quote, We are a nonviolent, peaceful protest group and have no intention of causing unrest. The latest edition of Nuke Info Tokyo is now available and we will provide a link to it excellent frontline information on what's actually happening in Japan and specifically Fukushima. John LaForge of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7, and who was interviewed at length on Nuclear Hot Seat number 603 from January 3rd, 2023, is still in prison in Germany, getting set to be let out on March 1st. He's spending his birthday in jail, and if you would like to send him a card to just congratulate him on his good work and cheer him on, we will have the mailing address, yes, snail mail, up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 608. And down in New Zealand, I'm happy to report that Kevin Hester is safe after Cyclone Gabriel. Kevin was one of the earliest supporters of and sources for Nuclear Hot Seat and has remained one of our biggest cheerleaders through the years. He lives on a tiny island off the coast of New Zealand's North Island and there were concerns 
Fortunately, he's fine, and now undoubtedly engaged in helping his neighbors dig out. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 14, 2023. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, thebulletin.org, cnic.jp slash English, uraniumfilmfestival.org, capecod.com, 10tv.com, japantimes.co.jp, asahi.com, koreatimes.co.kr, tokyo-np.co.jp, kbs.co.kr, npr.org, climatecrocs.com, express.co.uk, reuters.com, ccnr.org, telegraph.co.uk, the sole dead cubicle drones who crank out propaganda stories for world nuclear news, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the nuclear hot seat hot story. Hey, the way things are going in the nuclear world, you need to not miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. And we make it easy for you. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box where you can put in your first name and email address. As a result, every week you will get one email which contains a link to the show and a short description of some of the contents. Or if you're a podcastaholic, just sign up for Nuclear Hot Seat on your favorite podcast channel because we are everywhere. And you are places where I can't be. So if you see something, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send me that information in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program and the website. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with the date that it's over, because once it starts, it's never over. There you have it, your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.